0: Well good morning everyone, it is a wonderful day together to be here to worship God and to sing His praises with you and I've enjoyed it very much thus far, enjoyed our prayers together and our worship to our God. If you will, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to continue our study like we've been doing for the last close to a year now, about once a month we've taken a chapter out of Hebrews and today we're covering chapter 10. It's uh, good to be back with you guys. We've been gone for a couple weeks now. We are in Texas, then we went to see my new niece up in Oakdale, Taylor and I's new niece. And so we're glad to be back this week, and uh, I'm privileged to have the chance to, to lead this study today. And as we do this, there are some things in here that are, that are challenging. There's some things that are comforting, and I think God's Word is good about doing that for us. And I hope you get the same thing out of it that I have uh, today. We have 37 verses to cover. It's a long chapter, but just for your uh, peace of mind, we're gonna have a pretty fast section at the beginning. We're gonna really slow down and chew through some meat in the middle, and then toward the end, we'll kind of move quickly through the end of the chapter. So if you feel like I'm getting toward the middle and you're wondering when this, uh, when Pharaoh is gonna let us go, there's probably it's probably gonna come faster towards the end. Okay. So Hebrews chapter 10, our key verses, uh, key ideas that I've listed on the screen. Or what he gets into as the the application of all of this. He says, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and consider one another. So, before we get into that, a couple lead-up verses. Get my clicker plugged in. A couple lead-up verses. So, Hebrews chapter 9 ended on the note saying this. Not that he, speaking of Jesus, should offer himself often... As the high priest enters the most holy place every year without blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end or the consummation of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. So we have a running start now into chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1, it says, For the law, okay, the law speaking of the Old Testament. We've been talking about the Hebrew Christians. Their old law transition has been a little bit challenging for them. He says, for this law, having just a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things. Okay, so... In case you're not familiar with this idea of shadow and substance, basically, if you think about it, like God uh, is shining a light through time. And that light comes through uh, from time. It catches the present object and it casts a shadow on the ground. And so God in the future casts this light of Jesus and behind Jesus there is this shadow. It's not really him. It's, it's his shadow. It's the, the shadow of the new covenant embodied in the Old Testament. And so Jesus in the new covenant is this new substance. It's this, uh, the very substance of things to come. That's Jesus. That's the new covenant. And the shadow is everything in the old law. There was just kind of a, as you see a picture of this flower here, it's just a rough outline, no color, just, just a dark image with no depth, no beauty necessarily in a shadow, except for just the form it holds. The Old Testament had its place and it had its beauty, but the real beauty, the real thing that God wants us to be focusing on is this new covenant. And just like this flower has so much depth and color and nuance, that's how much different Jesus is compared to the old law. So this law just had a shadow of good things to come and not the real image of it. These things can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. This is a continuation of the same argument we've been covering for a while now. So I don't want to labor it too much. The point is, Jesus is the supreme sacrifice that got rid of all of the sacrifices they used to do. And he says, these same sacrifices that happen over and over and over year after year, they never made people who approached perfect. That man who came up and laid his head on the bull, or who laid his head on the lamb, and then killed it, it never made him perfect. It never made him complete and forgiven like the new law was designed to. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. If, if it would have made him perfect, they would have stopped those offerings year after year, Right? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. So here he uses this word, purified. As we've talked about their, their, uh, their systems that they would do in the Old Testament, it was more of a purification process. It was a cleansing, but it was not an uprooting of the issue. It was not a, a once and for all solution. It was a purification. You know, it was cleaned for a little bit. Uh, if you if you clean your countertops, they need to be cleaned again. There, it's a purification process that has to continually happen. They would have had no more consciousness of sins if that would have been it, because they were not eternally forgiven yet. Verse three, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. When they came to sacrifice the animal you know that when they had to slit that throat again, that must have pained them every single time they had to do it. It was a reminder of their failures. It was a reminder of the wrongs that they had done, maybe knowingly and maybe unknowingly. They had so many things that they were reminded of. Verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. They could be purified, but they couldn't be taken away. Verse 5, therefore, when he came into the world, speaking of Jesus, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. So this is a quote from Psalm chapter 40, and David is speaking, uh, kind of we're, we're connecting some ideas of Jesus, and David's making this prophecy. But God did not desire sacrifice and offering, it says here, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus had a body prepared for him by God. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. So when Jesus came, he was given a body. And, and it's interesting because we think, of, we think of these sacrifices as this is how God's will was set up. And it's true. He's going to say in the next verse uh, coming up that, it was according to God's will that they were offering these sacrifices, but they didn't bring him pleasure. Killing these animals year and after year, what didn't make God happy? To, to see that, that death continually every year, that wasn't his plan. God gave them the tree of life, and they rebelled. He wants life for this world. As I think about this idea, when it says here that Jesus came to God and, and Eric, he, he had this perspective of, I have come to do your will, O God, in, in a body you have prepared for me. It's a fascinating thought to think about the perspective of formation of our Lord. And this is kind of a side note. It's not necessarily what the author is getting at here, but it's fascinating to me to think about Jesus was formed in the womb just like we are. Jesus was born just like we were. He cried as a baby just like we did. And as I think about God the Father's role in that, it's fascinating to me to consider this idea of Jesus being formed. And it takes me back to Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. God, you know all about me. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Considering God's perspective on us is to me one of the most satisfying and kind of mind-blowing things. To think about God seeing us in all of these deep ways leaves me with the same conclusion that this psalmist reaches in chapter 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. He goes on to say later in the chapter, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. In Hebrews chapter 10, that's part of what he says here a body you have prepared for me. And as we think about the fact that God foreknew and planned for Jesus to be a sacrifice. What must have that have been from God's perspective? To know that he was forming and closely designing a body for his son to be brutally crucified one day. A body you have prepared for me. And Jesus says, I have come to do your will, O God. Going on in verse 8, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. So he's saying, he's repeating what he just said. God did not get pleasure out of these old law, sacrifices and burnt offerings. But he, he makes this point, they are offered according to the law. So it wasn't like it was wrong, but it just wasn't the full picture yet. It was just a shadow Verse 9, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The problem wasn't the keeping of the law. But the reality is the consummation of God's will was that there would be a perfect final sacrifice and just like Jesus embodies here, a willingly obedient heart within that sacrifice. This sentence holds a lot. You know, that, that God wanted something better and Jesus responds that I have come to do your will. That's kind of the, the New Testament in a, in a nutshell. It is full, complete sacrifice that paid for our sins. And it is willing submission to a loving God who did that. That is the consummation of God's will. Verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. If you notice, when we went through the tabernacle, there was nowhere to sit. Their work was symbolically to never end. That was kind of the point. There was no chairs. There was a table that held the place where they worked. There was a lampstand. There was an altar of incense. But there was nowhere to sit. And that was supposed to mean that this is never going to end until Jesus comes back. You're never going to be able to sit down from this endless work of constantly cleaning until Jesus comes. And then, verse 12, Jesus is going to sit down in his completed work. Verse 12, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. These priests could finally take their seat because it was no longer their job to purify the people. Jesus had done it, and he took his seat at the right hand of God. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around how much death went through the nation of Israel. If you had millions of people, they say, it it probably amassed to. Millions of people offering sacrifices. I mean, I tried to, you know, copy and paste over and over until my fingers got tired to to think about how many times that would have happened. Over and over in the death and the blood and the sacrifice and the killing. Jesus took away all that with one sacrifice. Verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before... This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. This is that covenant. He didn't want the continual sacrifices to continue. Those didn't bring him pleasure, but this, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. It's not just going to be something that's on scrolls where you follow these lists of directions. It's going to be a law of the heart. Verse 7, then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. There was a constant reminder, but he cut off that constant reminder and says, I'm not going to remember anymore. How awesome must that have been for God? I, I wonder what his emotions do as this course of history runs out. We know God got angry. We know God, there's things that please God and there's things that don't please God. How much of a relief was it for God to finally have the moment where he could say, It's forgiven. I've let let it go. It's remembered no more. God wants us to have that moment. Because he paid a lot for that moment. Verse 18. Now where there is a remission of these things. Now where where there is a remission of these, these sins. There is no longer an offering for sin. So... As kind of a side note, we have to remember that there's no longer an offering, both practically speaking in the form of sacrifices, but we have to remember in our spiritual walk to not treat ourselves like we are the punishment for our own sins. Because we can have this mentality that wants to respond to our own guilt with a self-punishing attitude. With an attitude that says, you know what, Uh, Sometimes it even goes to the extreme, people harm themselves physically. People harm themselves emotionally, they beat themselves down, they self-belittle, we beat ourselves up. And that's kind of a form of a sacrifice. Because in the Old Testament sacrifices, there had to be life given, and, and in a sense pain suffered for sin. And we can sometimes feel that urge you know, to, to beat ourselves down and you know, beat myself up like I messed up and I continue to mess up. And That's not our place. God has told us that we are forgiven. God has told us that there is no more sacrifice for sins, including our own emotional sacrifice for putting yourself in your place over and over. We do need to repent, obviously. That's not even the conclusion I'm talking about. But beating ourselves up, we don't need to be a living sacrifice in that way. We're to be living sacrifices, serving God with our lives, not making ourselves an offering for sin either. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. He says, he doesn't say uh, you should have boldness. He says we're having bold, we have boldness that 's the, the way he 's expressing that verb it's we have boldness it 's not that you need to have it. maybe we should focus on our boldness, but he 's saying you 've got it. Jesus broke down that veil. He, he made the way you have that boldness. you can talk to God, having that boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, not by our own goodness, not by our own merit, by the blood of Jesus. Maybe we be careful to talk to God with that respect that we acknowledge it's not on our own, but by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us, which just means he, he set up, he initiated this new and living way for us. Through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, now he's going to list those three things I talked about at the beginning. But before we get into those, he tells us that we have a new and a living way, okay? If it's 2,000 years old, a lot of things in our days rust and corrupt after a couple decades. He said that this way is new and it is living and it is true today it just as it is true 2,000 years ago, it is fresh and that sacrifice is living for us. Which he consecrated or set up through us through the veil. When, when, God, when God's finished work was completed, and Jesus was sacrificed the veil of the temple that last veil before the holiest the holy place the most holy place this veil you see here it was ripped from top to bottom it says and that being to signify that God is the one who did it it wasn't ripped from the bottom to the top like someone else came in and pulled it up but God himself tore down the veil from the top of it all the way to the bottom To signify that this old law, the way to God's presence had been paved and it had been made by the blood of Jesus and by his sacrifice. Through that veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a high priest over the house of God. So he's finally drawing kind of a conclusion. He's got a lot of chapters of build up and lead up and establishing that Jesus is going to be This this supreme sacrifice once for all time that would be at the consummation of the ages. He's been building this a lot. Now he says, since we have this high priest, he's going to tell us to draw near, hold fast to the confession of our hope, and consider one another. So this is the part where we're going to slow down for a little bit and go through these things. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So you're probably seeing there's a lot of Old Testament imagery here. But he, the, the main idea, he wants us to draw near. As you think about what God wants out of us, he wants us to draw near. And it only makes sense because if you Picture yourself as a father or as a mother who had paid so much to rescue your child. The only response of a loving parent would say, please draw near. I, I, I saved you. I rescued you. Now come be with me. That is God's plea to us. Let us draw near with a true heart. A true heart, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. A heart that is faithful and true and is transparent and real. A true heart. Not a fake heart. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. So we've been talking about the sprinkling of blood that would purify in the Old Testament. Our hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience or cleansed, and our bodies washed with pure water. That washing is, is a relation to the Old Testament washings, but also an allusion to baptism, where we are washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus when we make contact with the blood in baptism. We are washed with pure water. So, what are a couple ways uh, we can draw near to God? I was trying to think of a couple practical things um, beyond maybe just the, you need to read God's word and, and live it and, uh, and pray. A couple thing, practical things. I, I hope you guys can think of some things on your own. I'm curious to hear from you what you think, maybe after services. What are some ways we can draw near to God? And... Uh, Beyond just kind of the basics, the first thing I thought of was to pray in ways that breed closeness and not distance. Okay, and I've kind of put a little caveat in here to beware of the never enough trap. We have a balance to strike in our prayer lives. We have balance to strike within God's word that we want to acknowledge our own our own frailties in front of Him. We have to confess our sins, especially we have to. Be aware of how great he is and how small we are compared to him. That is all a good place in our prayer lives. But we have to be aware that that can become a cycle of only talking to God about how I'm so sorry for my sins and I'm I'm so low and I'm never good enough. God wants us to draw near to him because he paid to stop that endless cycle of sacrifice where we were never ceremonially good enough. We are redeemed and forgiven and so we can talk to God in a way that breathes closeness and where we draw near to Him and thank Him for the forgiveness. Where we don't just say, God, I'm sorry I messed up, I'm so bad. But we say, God, thank you. Thank you so much that you have pulled me near, that you have saved me, that you have welcomed me into your presence and that I have an open invitation to your throne. Because as we've said, a father that just went through a huge rescue mission rescue mission that took thousands of years to lay out. He doesn't want us to sit there and just wallow in our own our own self-pity, our own wrongs. He wants us to move forward, and he wants us to thank him and enjoy a relationship where we draw near to him because of that. A, A prayer life where we always say the negatives will create distance in our own minds from God. May we not Get stuck in that trap. So let's pray in ways that breed closeness, not distance. And so part of that is realizing God's perspective. Meditate on passages like when Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. The, this, the context of this is kind of sad, but, but the blue part I highlighted is special. It helps us see what God wants us to be aware of, is that he's not just a warning God. He, he's a God who, I can't think of a more tender picture than, than a mother, a hen, gathering her chicks to protect them and shelter them and to draw them near. And this ties into the next thing we're going to talk about in praying God's word back to him. So this, this is a huge part of developing this closeness is develop a relationship where we're reciprocating the communication that God has started with us through his word, Okay, This has been one of the biggest things for me in helping develop a prayer life that is, number one, not vain repetition. Because we can run out of things to say sometimes. But also in a way that I feel like my prayer life ad- adapts and adjusts to my understanding of God's will. So as I grow in knowledge of God's Word, I I want to pray that back to God. For example, let's take take something just that we read recently. I picked this scripture at random. If we're reading the scripture, Hebrews 9.25, where it said, Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So, I just picked a random passage. So, here's how we might pray this passage back to God. God, thank you so much that I don't have to live under the old law, where sacrifices were continually made and never forgiven truly. But thank you so much that I now live in this end of the ages, where... Jesus has put away sin for me. That is a a prayer to God where we are reading what God said, and we respond with a prayer of thankfulness. A prayer that says, God, you know, I'm taking in what you you told me, and I want to turn it into praise and into thanksgiving. So that was just a random example. You could pray any passage back to God truly. Uh, Here's another one. If we were to look at Jeremiah chapter 32, because this is just referenced in the context, I picked this one. Uh, I'll just read the blue section. It says, God prophesying that they shall be my people, speaking of this new law, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. I just pulled this out of a recent context in Hebrews, and we could pray that. And we can say, God, thank you so much that you have welcomed me to be one of your people. Thank you that you can renew my heart and that you can teach me your ways. And I pray that you will teach me, teach my heart, change my heart, and renew my ways so that I can have a family that follows your will. So that I can pass on your goodness to others. As this passage says, for the good of their children after them. We can turn every passage that we read truly into a prayer to God somehow. And if you're struggling with your prayer life, that has been a big help for me. And this is something that we are supposed to use in our classrooms all the time. We just refer to it in teaching as a sentence frame. When we're trying to teach students how to learn how to communicate, we give them a sentence like, I like how the author uses blank to show blank. When we're learning to communicate, we need things to get us started, things to get us going. So this is nothing new. This is not unique to, uh, to God's word. And it's, it's, it's a way we learn to communicate by, by taking what we can uh, start with and, and working off of that, I think will help us in our prayer lives. So the next thing he says, he says, uh, or the next way to draw near, he tells us to cleanse our hearts. So we've talked about Um, having good prayer lives. We've talked about uh, praying God's will back to Him. But it also tells us in this passage that we are to have hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. So a way to draw near to God is to cleanse our hearts. And that's something God can do, but it takes... That's not easy. It's not easy on us because that means habits have to change. If we have sinful habits, if we have sinful... Uh, addictions. if we have sinful things that we are a part of regularly, those things are going to pollute our hearts and it's going to keep us from, from fully experiencing the nearness to God that we need to. Living out and thinking on pure things will help calm a mind riddled with the consequences and fears brought on by sin. So that is a huge step in drawing near to God is cleansing our hearts. Okay, so the second thing he tells us, he says, let us uh, draw near. And then he says, let us hold fast. This is the second one. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. They're having challenging times now. And he is telling them uh, basically to hold on. Because you said it in the good times. And now it's time to hold on through the challenging times. The confession of the hope. How do we hold on to the confession of our hope? Well, it's, with confession, it's very, very simple. We've got to say it. We've got to talk about our hope. And I think the simplest way to start is to talk about our hope to God himself. This ties in with praying God's will. Talking to God about our hope. Talking to God in the sense that, God, I cannot wait for you to return. I'm so excited for you to be here. Maybe I'm disappointed that you didn't come today, but I cannot wait. Maybe tomorrow you will be here. I don't know, something, whatever you think of. But having the perspective that we are talking to God about our hopes, that confession of our hope. Number two, we want to talk about it and say it, confess it to people who will reciprocate it. So that might start with your families. Maybe your families are faithful and they would reciprocate that hope. <clears throat> they would encourage you in that hope. Um, but the, maybe it's not your family and uh, maybe it's the people in here. And hopefully it is the people in here. Maybe, may we reciprocate and talk about together the, the hope and the confession of our hope that we are looking forward to and excited for the return of our Savior. The hope that is ahead of us must be shared within us to keep our faith holding fast. And thirdly, to those who don't yet reciprocate it. I've got yet there uh, highlighted because we never know who might one day change their heart. And we can slowly start to work in confessions of our hope into our daily life. There's a lot of ways people can do that, and you can do that in your own way. But when people bring challenges to you, it's often a good time to share what gets you through. So you can confess your hope to God, to people who reciprocate it, and also to those who do not yet reciprocate it. And that will help to hold on to the confession of our hope that we have in Jesus. Okay, the next thing he says, we've got let us uh, draw near. We've got let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And the third let us is let us consider one another. In order to stir up love and good works. So I like the language to stir up usually means some trouble, but he says to stir up and to to awaken and churn up good works and love. You know, when when you have a if you have a cup of hot chocolate or I don't know, cider or something you've poured into a drink where that powder is at the bottom, it is not good when all that's just sitting on the bottom. You want to, you know, when you get that drink, you want to stir it up so that it, it goes throughout the whole body. and it goes throughout the whole body of liquid so you have a good drink. He wants us to stir up love and good works one, upon one, or for one another so that we as a body can all be growing and full of those good works and that love. To consider one another. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So I don't really have to come up with how to consider one another in this passage because he tells us an example. He tells us to not, not uh, stay away from when your brothers and sisters get together. When we are assembling together as a body, consider one another, and, and let's be here for that. When we consider one another, That's going to help us hold on in times of challenge. But it also, maybe if we're not having the challenging time, it's going to help other people hold on in their time of challenge. We all come in here at different places. Maybe this morning you are high as a kite. But maybe if you're in here today, maybe you're real low today. We are constantly at a different point. So sometimes we need it, and sometimes we want to be here, and sometimes someone else is like, man, I'm pretty good. I could go do something else today, and i would be fine. That's not the point. The point is, if we're all at different places, we all come together throughout that, that's how we share. That's how we share our struggles and our good times and our bad times. Because maybe you don't need it today, but maybe someone else needs you today. Consider one another to store up these love and good works. He says, as is the manner of some. You know, uh, I believe we need to definitely make our best effort to... To be in God's worship, and but if you're worried about, I don't know. Let's say someone says, "Man, I,", I some people are really worried about. I missed a, a Wednesday night or something like that. This is kind of a side point, but you know, if especially like if you're sick, it, he's talking about a manner. It's a habit. Some people make a habit out of just not being there. But if it's a habit of being there, that's kind of the point that he's making. Um, so. The habitual coming to the assembly is the point of this passage. As is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. That day, I believe, is reference to the coming of Jesus. He's already talked about it in chapter 9. I don't believe this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem because it wouldn't really fit the context. But he has talked about Jesus coming again. And so as we see that day of Jesus coming... Let's do this all the more. As we see the day approaching, let's assemble. Let's exhort one another. Let's be together. And I know it's been hard after COVID. We've kind of separated a little bit because we just haven't been together as much. But let's work on that. Verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Okay, so in the Old Testament, they didn't have sacrifices for willful sins where you just did it anyway. They had sacrifices for uh, sins where they were committed in ignorance and and other things like that. But there's no sacrifice for a sin where you just wanted to do it anyway. And you just went ahead and rebelled and, and that's just it. He's saying here that there's not a sacrifice that covers that type of sin. It doesn't mean that you can't repent. And it doesn't mean that if you did it in the moment, knowing what you're doing, you can't repent. But if that sin stays as a I did it and I'm unrepentant if it stays in that category then there's no sacrifice for that sin. You can't cover that. He has a plan to cover people who are willing to repent and change their lives. And so if you have sinned and you feel like man the other day I knew what I was doing and I messed up and and I, I did it anyway. He's not saying that you can't be forgiven. He's saying that It can't stay as an unrepented sin to be forgiven of. Okay. So, verse 27. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire indignation which will devour the adversaries. When we sin willfully and we stay in it, all we've got to look forward to is fear. There's a certain fearful expectation, he says, and that will devour God's adversaries. We're going to start moving faster through the end of the chapter now. Verse 28, and he who has rejected Moses' law, the Old Testament, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in the Old Law, there were certain things that if you did, it just took two or three people to say, yeah, he, he did that, and you could die. So if it just took two or three people in Moses' law, verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. That was a long sentence, but basically he said, if in the old law, when it was just bulls and goats who were dying, if, if people in that time who sinned willfully could be killed for that, how much more serious, how much worse do you think it is If people see the Son of God, see everything that he did, and trample him underfoot, basically. They see that sacrifice and they just, they run right over it. Those who count the blood of the covenant, Jesus' blood, by which he was sanctified a common thing. So they treat Jesus' blood like, yeah, just any other blood. I don't need to do anything. He was just a normal guy with with common blood. That is insulting the spirit of grace that has come to save us. And it's saying how much more punishment will he be worthy of who tramples God's son underfoot like this. And insults God's spirit. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. He's not even talking here about judging the world He's saying the Lord will judge his people. He's writing to Hebrew Christians. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's true. Remember, there's always two sides. There's always uh, two truths to most of these situations. So it is a fearful thing to fall into God's hands. But he's speaking in the context of disobedience and willful, responding uh, with willful sin. The other side of this is that we already talked about is true. Our Lord is still a loving and good God, and, he, and he, he's a refuge for us. As we read, he said, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a chin, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. It is a fearful thing if we are not right with God, but it can also be a very comforting thing to be in God's hands. It depends on where we're at. Verse 32, But recall the former days. So he's going to think back on some times that was good, and he's going to encourage them to end this chapter. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, when you were enlightened by God's truth, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, so you had sufferings of your own, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. So they suffered in two different ways. They were mistreated themselves, and they were supporting people who were being mistreated. Verse 34, For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. The plundering of your goods, a lot of people sacrificed to take care of those who were in need in the early church. And they willfully gave what they had to serve. Knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Remember, any good you do is just temporary things here. If you give someone something that fills their need, it's just temporary. We have treasure and possessions in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, And he who is coming will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. In a little while, he says, he who is coming, he who is to come in the future, that's going to be in the past. Pretty soon, he's going to come. He who is coming will come, and it's all going to be completed One day it's all going to be over. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. This is the end of this chapter. And he is already making the transition to Hebrews 11 where he talks about uh, those who walked by faith. He's saying, we are not those who draw back to perdition or destruction. Or judgment. We're not those kind of people, but we're those kind of people who believe to the saving of the soul. And, and next time I speak, we're going to talk about the kind of people who do that from the old law in Hebrews chapter 11, where we hear of the hall of faith. That's the lesson for today from Hebrews chapter 10. I hope you can take these things for your own prayer life, your own spiritual perspective, and I hope you're both comforted and challenged today as I was myself. If you haven't started this walk, and you haven't been kind of initiated into this new covenant, brought in and contacted the, uh, with the blood of Christ, you can do that today. It's, it's simple. Jesus says, uh, we're told that you can hear God's word, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died for us for the remission of our sins, confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repent of our past life, and say, you know what, I'm going to take all of that and I'm going to turn and move to God's will and follow Him. You can repent. And be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you've already done that and you would like the prayers of the church, we're happy to take care of either of those things today while we stand and while we sit. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at...